Welcome back to the Burn Bag Podcast. My name is Ryan, being joined by Andre. Uh, Andre, what's going on with you? How you been? Uh, pretty good, Ryan. It's 7.45 a.m., the day after daylight savings time, uh, right before I'm about to start work. So it's quite early in the morning for me. Uh, but, you know, things are going good. I, ha- I have a lot of work travel that's coming up, and I'm hoping to move to D.C. by May. So I've already started looking for housing. And, uh, yeah, those rents, man. Oh, well, yeah, I'm, I'm right in the thick of it. And uh, my lease actually ends in August. So I'm, I'm just starting early days looking for my next move. But yeah, you know, living in, the, in a big city uh, comes at a cost. But nonetheless, uh, I enjoy DC. I know a lot of our listeners are from the DMV area. Uh, and I, I think many of them probably enjoy it as well. And so we're looking forward to having you in the area. Definitely, definitely. Well, Ryan, today, we have a great episode with Dr. Kenneth Deklava. So we're basically, we've been covering this Russia-Ukraine war for the past month or so, and before that for weeks on end, uh, interviewing a range of experts. But today we talked to Dr. Deklava because doc, the doctor has served in the State Department as the regional medical officer and psychiatrist uh, with State between 2002 and 2016. Uh, he mostly served overseas, but he also served in a leadership role between 2013 to 2015, and was also director of the U.S. State Department's Worldwide Diplomatic Mental Health Program. Uh, but really, uh, Ken has focused a lot on leadership profiles. Leadership profiles in the intelligence community are used uh, by many of our uh, you know, presidents, by many of our foreign policymakers, to actually understand the people on the other side of the table who they're dealing with, actually building up a psychological profile of many foreign leaders, some of our adversaries. We had a great episode with Ken, uh, maybe around this time last year, actually, called Leadership uh, Profiles in Discord, where we looked at Vladimir Putin, Kim Jong-un, and uh, Xi Jinping, try to understand a bit more about who they're actually like as people and who what they're actually like as leaders and what factors sort of influence their leadership style. And while today we sort of did a follow-up to that, but we focused exclusively on Vladimir Putin, a Ukrainian president, uh, Zelensky, and uh, so on. So we had a great episode with Ken and it's really just focusing in on the actors around this Ukraine-Russia war. Yeah. So I guess without further ado, Andre, let's just kick it off to our conversation with Ken. Uh, everyone, please make sure to kind of pay attention. Uh, you know, Andre and I are not psychiatrists or psychologists. And so a lot of our questions are, you know, are, are basically structured to kind of flesh out what it is that Ken does in approaching not only just like the mindset of a leader like Putin, but also right the childhood the experiences, being isolated because of COVID and other issues, and how that may influence decision-making. So we'll leave it there. Uh, Please enjoy our conversation with Ken. Ken, we we were privileged enough to have you on the podcast previously to talk about a bunch of world leaders, including Putin, but given what's happening in Russia and Ukraine, we thought it would be great to have you on once again. So thank you uh, very much for joining us. Uh, Thank you very much, Ryan and Andre, for having me again. It's always a pleasure and honor to be on your show. So for our listeners, our last episode with Ken was on leadership profiles. Uh, It was called Profiles in Discord, released maybe around this time last year, actually. And we talked about uh, Putin, Kim Jong-un, Xi Jinping, and a little bit of a basis for, you know, how to construct a leadership profile in the intelligence community. So 
a lot of our conversation will be based around that, but it'll be based primarily on Vladimir Putin and what's going on right now between Russia and the Ukraine. So, Ken, my first question is, we've heard a lot about Putin uh, in these recent weeks, about how he sort of changed a bit, I guess. So my first question is, has Putin, quote unquote, lost it? Absolutely not. I think that the, the thinking that he's lost it or or become erratic or is somehow mentally ill or has, quote, gone off the rails, it just simply doesn't uh, hold up to water. I, I understand the temptation to resort to that thinking when we often fail to understand Putin's mindset, uh, what makes him tick, and what are the drivers of his ambition as as the president of Russia. I th- I think it's it's risky and it's it's kind of an intellectual trap and a bit of a a heuristic trap that really doesn't stand up to to scrutiny. My view my view of the current crisis is that Putin knows exactly what he's doing. He's the same Putin as before in the sense that he's an absolutely ruthless, powerful, ambitious leader who who wants Russia and himself to be respected, and I think now both feared and respected on the world stage, and he's acted accordingly. Uh, he's a rational actor. Uh, and the other counterpart to that view is that what he's done so far is in our eyes, I think, a remarkable strategic intelligence failure for a person who's not used to failing. He's had a whole string of successes. And I think it's important to dig deeper into that and try to understand that and help us understand what the next steps might be. Well, that is certainly the goal of today's podcast. And so, uh, Ken, there's a lot to get into, but I want to next turn to understanding Putin's mindset, kind of what informs his worldview, his decision-making, because I think a huge problem with us in the West is that we are trying to use our Americanized or Westernized viewpoints to understand Putin. And I, at least to me, it's the completely wrong way to go about doing this. Yeah, I would, I would, I would agree with, with what you're saying uh, in your comment, uh, Ryan. I think it's important to understand that uh, Putin is probably more isolated. And that may be because of the COVID pandemic. There have been multiple media reports that he he requires his top advisors if they're going to meet with him in person to quarantine for uh, up to two weeks, and that he's conducted most of his uh, meetings uh, by Zoom. That being said, the German documentary filmmaker and journalist Hubert Seipel in 2014, made a documentary that I encourage your listeners to watch uh, called Ich Putin or I Putin, where he had spent several months, I think six to nine months with Putin and his inner circle and really got a close-up view as Putin. And even Saipel spoke of Putin's isolation at that time. So I think it's fair to say if he was isolated then, he's more isolated now. And that can lead to a narrower view of decision-making, more of a rigidity, uh, more of a groupthink, if you will, among his inner circle. And and there's the issues of age. Putin is 69. And as my mentor, 
and friend, the late Dr. Gerald Post wrote, aging leaders can sometimes have more of a propensity toward cognitive rigidity in their worldview, less flexibility. And what Dr. Peter Sudfeld, a psychologist at the University of uh, British Columbia is called a lack of integrative complexity. So when we talk about sort of Putin's uh, formation, his ideological formation, I certainly think we want to sort of take a step back and look at his uh, maybe young adulthood, his childhood, and sort of understand why he thinks the way he does now. And certainly we've seen a lot of news articles and videos on how the fall of the Soviet Union affected Putin. And Putin has called the fall of the Soviet Union a tragedy. But is it just the fall of the Soviet Union that has affected his ideology now? Like what about his childhood, his young adulthood? Uh, what occurred there perhaps that can indicate to us? I think there, there are many aspects of, of Putin and he's he is looking at him in black and white is not always helpful. I think it's useful to look at different aspects and nuances of Putin. And he's a much more complex and nuanced leader than, than is often portrayed in the media. Certainly, he was impacted by a childhood growing up with war-weary parents who had survived the siege of Leningrad. His mother came very close to starving to death. As, as our listeners know, in the 900-day siege, about a million Russians died. And his father was a special forces uh, veteran who was wounded and disabled in a um, counter-terror operation against the Nazis that were encircling uh, what was then Leningrad, now St. Petersburg. So clearly Putin was a child of that post-war era. His mother also lost a child during the war. So this is a family that, like many Russians, who lost about 25 million people during World War II or what they call the Great patriotic war, this sentiment is still very much alive in today's Russia. Uh, all you have to do is go to Victory Park, as I did on May 9th, on Victory Day, to, to feel the emotion and the sentiment that Russians feel. Every Russian family has a relative that was touched uh, by that war. So I think that aspect resonates with with Putin and his and his inner circle and many Russians, ordinary Russians. The other aspect, as you pointed out, is the loss of the Soviet Union. It shouldn't be understood in the sense that Putin wants to return to a communist ideology per se, but certainly he he believes very strongly in 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 the ideology of a powerful uh, uh, Russia that is respected on the world stage, and he wants to recreate that sense of Russia, certainly with his uh, most recent action in the, in the horrible, tragic invasion of Ukraine. The other thing that shaped Putin, uh, and I, I urge our listeners to, to read Fiona Hill's book, Operative in the Kremlin, is, is his role as a KGB officer. And this has always been part of who he is, part of his self-definition. We've also seen, as a young man, he took up judo. He's he's a superb martial artist who is an eighth degree a black belt in judo, a hachidan. He's in, if I'm, I think I'm correct here in saying that he is the highest ranking non-Japanese judoka in the world. Uh, and, and he's very talented, and that's been a part of his life since he was about nine or ten years old. So that's important to understand because in his books on judo, and his videos, he talks about 
the the sense of order in judo, the respect for one's opponents, the discipline that it gave him. Um, so I think the combination of judo and, and his KGB training, where he has said famously, I'm a specialist in human relations, and, and his, his own other formative experiences are very important. I think the judo aspect of this uh, is incredibly important. And I think you're, you're saying uh, order and respect, particularly when you look to the rhetoric of Putin when he talks about the West. He really does talk about the lack of order, particularly within Russia having their quote unquote sphere of influence being infringed upon by NATO, but largely the US. And I think this lack of respect is also critical because, I mean, and Ken, I'm, I'm curious as to your thoughts as to whether or not what Putin says may or may not actually be what he believes, but it's been quite clear through the rhetoric of the Russian regime and Putin in particular that they think that the United States is really on a mission and NATO is on a mission to push back against Russia and having any sort of influence in the former Soviet states, but also to ensure that Russia is as weak as possible. I, I think Putin believes that. I don't think that that's a, a false statement to say that, that that he believes it. I think he he wants to project strength and power, and he wants he abhors weakness. Uh, after the 2004, the horrible tragedy in Beslan, where Chechen terrorists took over a school, and about 350 Russian children lost their lives. Putin was on national TV, and, and he was very emotional. And um, this is, people often think of him as unemotional, but he was very, very emotional. And he said, we were beaten because we were weak. So that's a core uh, belief of his, that weakness simply cannot be countenanced. And he can't in today's uh, crisis, any solution where Putin is perceived either by himself in his own self-concept or by the elite around him, the power centers around him, or even by uh, ordinary Russians as weak, any any such settlement is probably doomed to failure. So when we talk about Putin's inner circle, you mentioned that you know while Putin is isolated, certainly he does have that inner circle of advisors, of friends that he is meeting with. Uh, who ex- actually is that inner circle? Are these the oligarchs? Are these more so political advisors? Who are they? This is one of the most tough intelligence questions and what makes Putin a very hard target. Uh, in the intelligence community, both in our country and in other countries that struggle to understand um, his mindset, if you will, is who influences him. This is this is a general thing that they ask of other leaders as well, such as Xi Jinping or Kim Jong-un, other leaders I've studied. But in Putin's case, it's a tough question, but a very important one in the sense we can certainly surmise that that his uh, colleagues who he's known for a long time that are former KGB and FSB colleagues, Nikolai Petrushov, the um, the director of Russia's equivalent of the National Security Council that we saw on TV on Mon- the Monday two weeks ago when the invasion of Ukraine began, uh, FSB director uh, Bortnikov, uh, others such as um, SVR director uh, Director of Foreign Intelligence, uh, Sergei Narishkin, uh, Foreign Minister, Sergei Lavrov, uh, Dmitry Medvedev, and, and, and others. 
But I think the key players and, and Defense Minister uh, Sergei uh, Shoigu, I think the key players are probably uh, Shoigu, Patrushov, and uh, and uh, Bortnikov. I think the the dressing down and humiliation of uh, of SVR director uh, Sergei Narishkin on international TV was really a shocker and somewhat unprecedented. Why do I say that? The SVR, by doing that, I think Putin made himself enemies and he has to watch his back. The SVR has always considered itself the elite of the elites, both in Soviet and in Russian society. They are the, the, the most traveled, the best educated, the, the multilingual, multicultural uh, um, officers able to blend in with different cultures around the world. And certainly in Europe, they're, they're the ones who know where, where, where all the money is. Uh, and, and so for him to do a smackdown like he did there, I thought was, uh, was somewhat unprecedented on his part. Also, it, it's in a sense a betrayal of his own SVR, um, well, KGB roots. He trained in the Foreign Intelligence uh, Institute, the, the Red Banner Institute, the Andropov Red Banner Institute, prior to being deployed overseas in Dresden for five years in East Germany. So you mentioned two names there, but one name you didn't mention was Sergei Lavrov, the foreign minister who we've been seeing quite a lot of on the news when we sort of see these diplomatic talks happening. Uh, do we have any uh, indication of what Putin's relationship with Lavrov looks like? Just because for the audience, I guess, we've seen a lot of Lavrov in the public eye, I guess. He's the most, second most visible Russian uh, leader uh, other than Putin. The, I think the influence, the fact that he's in the public eye shouldn't necessarily mean that his, inf- I think that his influence is as deep with Vladimir Putin as, uh, as that of the, of the closer inner circle of intelligence veterans. I would think they probably have the tightest influence. You also mentioned the oligarchs. I think there, one has to be careful there. I think there are some oligarchs that are very close to Vladimir Putin, like Pyotr Avin, Oleg Deripaska, Mikhail Friedman, some of whom have now spoken out publicly against the war. Uh, and there are other uh, very powerful oligarchs, uh, one who I should name who's been sanctioned for many years, Gennady Timchenko, who is also a former KGB officer and a billionaire in, in international oil trader and banker. And I should add, many of these oligarchs, Timchenko included, have multiple passports. So they're, they have European passports. They're easily able to blend in with Europe and they know Europe. So would they be able to influence Putin's thinking? I don't know the answer to that question. Would he reach out to them or would they reach out to him to sort of say, this is what I'm hearing for his own kind of consumption as a, as a consumer of intelligence, yes, I think so. So can you mention Putin's verbal takedown of some of his advisors, which to me was in, incredibly astounding to watch just because I had never seen that before. And, you know, in the years of watching kind of the Russian elite have meetings with one another, but something that Putin tends to do, and we've seen this over the years, is use physical presence as whether whether it be intimidation or other factors to project power. We've seen him do this with Lukashenko, Alexander Lukashenko from Belarus, by the sizing of his chair, how he's sitting. Um, how 
do you view one uh, an individuals and in this case Putin's um, kind of physical demeanor and his the way he sets up meetings as indicative of maybe his mental state or his uh, kind of ability to engage in the actions he's engaging in? It, it's not about mental state or, or psycho- individual psychology or psychiatry per se. It's it's about the psychology of power. And so we've seen this with the famous, now famous, long table. The way the, the Security Council meeting the night that the war was announced was set up, the distancing. Uh, we, we it, It's a power projection. He... We've seen this when he when he met with you mentioned Lukashenko when they meet on Putin's yacht. It, Putin in those cases is always in control, and and so control and power are very important to him. You you feel this uh, as an outsider as as I was uh, as an American diplomat. I spent five years in Moscow. To understand this power, you have to feel it personally almost as these. Uh, interlocutors such as France's President Macron, uh, uh, Israel's Prime Minister Naftali Bennett, and others uh, have felt when they went, uh, uh, Olaf Scholz, the, the new German Chancellor. You have to really understand understand the physical kind of feeling of that, or what, what Russians call the sensitivity of that. And, and the way I felt it was when I lived, my first assignment in Moscow, I had, um, I lived about 25 kilometers in 17, 18 miles from downtown where the embassy was. So it was a long commute. But when Putin was coming into town from Novogaryovo, and my my route overlapped with part of his route, of his motorcade, they would shut it down. They'd shut the whole place down for four hours. I was once stuck in traffic for four hours. I had a meeting with my deputy chief of mission uh, at 11. Uh, that was uh, on that. I had a monthly briefing and I left my house at seven and I barely made it to the meeting. So that seeing the whole half of Moscow literally shut down is a power projection. So that, that, that hopefully can help your listeners understand uh, that aspect of Putin. So how does Putin view uh, former leaders of Russia and the Soviet Union? For example, he came into power right after Boris Yeltsin, who was largely not very popular at all when he apologized uh, for its leadership on December 31st, 1999, the day Putin took over. But I mean, how does he view Yeltsin, Gorbachev, last Soviet leader? And then are there any leaders he's trying to emulate? Like, is he trying to emulate Brezhnev? Is he trying to emulate Stalin? We're, we keep- No, I, that, that, let me answer the second question. Well, I'll answer the first one. I think he, he views uh, Yeltsin and Gorbachev as weak, as, as Gorbachev as having made decisions that led to the dissolution of the USSR. And Yeltsin, as kind of bumbling and weak. And I think, as I said before, Putin abhors, abhors that. I think he views leaders, he's written about this and given interviews where he viewed strong European leaders. Uh, he respected them, de Gaulle, uh, uh, Germany's post-war chancellor, Ludwig Erhard, uh, and Eric Sharon, Israel's uh, prime minister, Eric Sharon. And there was a famous interview that Putin gave 
in the early 2000s where they asked him which country respected the most and he said Israel, uh, which is interesting because he's always been close to Israel. And they asked why, and he said, because they built a state out of the desert, out of nothing, and they resurrected a dead language and made it alive. So he views power not only in terms of power, but how it interweaves with culture. And I think that's, that's very important to Putin. Putin is very much a Russian at heart. And Russian, the ordinary Russians, even if they may disagree with many of his policies, and most Russians probably don't want war now in the Ukraine, but they resonate with, with that type of, of thinking of power and respect. For, for Putin, power is, is the number one coin of the realm even more so than money. Nobody knows how much he's worth. There, there are wild estimates in the media from $10 million to a $2 billion. But for him, I think money is, is a means to an end to influence people. And he's certainly done that in his creation of the power vertical in Russia over the last 20 years. Yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree. There are some analysts that believe that Putin's only doing this for the money to enrich his, his, himself and his cronies. And at least for me, I think the the emphasis, and as you mentioned, language, culture, religion, Russian orthodoxy is a kind of a huge component of all of this, but also history. And I mean, Fiona Hill writes about this. Some other uh, experts write about how Putin's use of history is so crucial. And so, Ken, how do you think Putin views history? And it seems like he's trying to either recreate history or rewrite history um, from this perspective, because there's a lot of maybe misinformation that's coming out of the regime and him in particular. I think I think based on what I've I've read, including the the famous speech about the 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 notorious speech about the Ukraine that he published and gave last year, I think Putin is a very strong student of history. Fiona Hill is 100% correct, and he he sees himself as the embodiment. Of, of modern Russia, of a strong, resurgent, albeit revanchist, a Russia that's respected and now feared on the world stage. And I think the sense of having interlocutors now having to come to him to negotiate with him on the world stage is a projection that he will probably use uh, in his Russian media appearances and, and frankly, state propaganda to, to his effect. Uh, so I think that's very, very important for him. The, the other aspect of, of power is, is he's, if anything, he's grown more powerful and more rigid over the last several years. And, and there was a part of him in the earlier parts of his career where he exhibited really exquisite diplomatic skills. Uh, and even in 2018, I've written about that after the Script all killing. He went on a charm offensive throughout Europe. And that worked for a while, but he's walked away from that and really returned to a more rigid um, kind of primordial power projection as, as a great power. And, and it's interesting to note that the, the recent unclassified uh, annual threat report by the Director of National Intelligence says they use similar language. They see Russia as a kind of trying to be a resurgent great power. Uh, and this is very different from what uh, the kind of things we've seen uh, Western leaders often say that it's it's a gas station masquerading as a country or, or that it's a third rate, fourth rate power because of its economy. I, I think 
we have to be careful with those statements. They can miss the boat. Russia is a huge country uh, in terms of geographic landmass and, and, and influence. And I think Putin wants it to remain now. So we've talked a little bit about how Putin views other countries and the respect per, and disrespect he may have towards certain nations. Uh, my question is, how has he viewed, I guess, uh, U.S. presidents that he's both interacted with and worked with on that sort of peer-to-peer level, but also even perhaps like uh, former U.S. presidents like a Reagan, a Kennedy, and all of that? I don't know the complete answer to that question, but I know it's important for our listeners to know Putin has interacted with, with five U.S. presidents, with President Clinton, with President Bush, with President Obama, with President uh, Trump and now with President Biden. I think it's probably most important to view how he how he views President Biden. And my guess would be that part of the intelligence failure of this operation, in terms of its slowdown and, and, and the kind of the miscalculations that, um, that, the, that Putin made and, and his inner circle made, is I think they view President Biden as weak. And and they they're very well informed. The polls two weeks before the invasion of the Ukraine uh, showed President Biden's popularity rating at, at a low of thirty nine percent. So they figured they could exploit that weakness. They view America as divided and weak, and I think they view the West as divided and weak. Certainly, I think it shocked them both President Biden's ability to rally NATO and the European Union. Uh, and, tr- and also neutral countries like Switzerland uh, to apply these crushing uh, sanctions probably took Putin and his leadership by surprise. Uh, I think it's also worth noting that he he's every president that he's interacted with, he's been able to get away with other such actions, whether it was the carpet bombing of Grozny in 2000. Uh, to uh, the invasion of Georgia in 2008, the invasion of the Ukraine and taking of Crimea and and parts of the Donbas in in 2014, the the role in Syria in 2015 through 2017, interference in our elections in 2016 and 2020, interference in European elections over the last uh, five to six years. Uh, the murders on foreign soil of Litunyenko in Britain in 2006, uh, attempted murder of Skripal in 2018, and of uh, and domestically of Alexei Navalny uh, two years ago, of Boris Nemtsov was killed in Moscow, and several of these people were poisoned with um, banned chemical or nuclear weapons. The ability to do those things and get away with it uh, probably emboldened him. So I think he was caught off guard. You mentioned who does he respect? I would, I'm going to venture to guess right now. I think the biggest strategic intelligence failure was underestimating President Zelensky, who has really shown unbelievable courage and heroism, has rallied not only the Ukrainians, but the world. And, and Putin clearly underestimated Zelensky, but so did we. We offered him a plane ride out. He said, I'm not going. I'm staying. I want ammunition, not a ride. And I think 
in a grudging way, uh, if they ever come to negotiations, and there have been glimmerings of that in, in the media this week, that they might meet in Jerusalem, mediated by Israel. I think Zelensky, Putin may not like him, but he's probably earned his respect. And I'm glad you brought up of Volodymyr Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, uh, just because I think, I mean, he is also important to understand kind of this back and forth. And you, you can't do a full analysis of Putin without understanding the other side in this current crisis. And so um, could you, for our, at least for our listeners, help walk us through who Volodymyr Zelensky is in a similar way we did with Putin? Uh, Zelensky is a young politician. He's 44 years old. He's He, he has a young family. And He's not a natural, well, he's become a natural politician. He's exquisitely good at what he does. He's, he's the great communicator. Um, he will be, I'm sure, uh, Time Magazine's Man of the Year this year. Uh, he, but he was a, a, an actor, trained as a lawyer. He was an actor, famous on TV and movies, and very new to politics when he was elected um, several years ago, and thought of as a lightweight. And my guess is that... Uh, Putin thought that uh, Zelensky would would flee with with the government and therefore be easily toppled. I am 100% certain, based on what I've read in the media reports, that Putin and his inner circle thought that this, they didn't even call it an invasion, they called it a special operation, would be over in 72 hours and they would install a puppet government. There are many corrupt Ukrainian politicians that have close ties to Russia. One of them would be put in power. And that would be that. And, and the Donbass uh, would become, you know, autonomous regions with a lot more autonomy. And they would steal, Crimea would become a permanent part of Russia. And I think they, they didn't expect Zelensky's kind of unbelievable uh, courage and heroism and almost kind of like an epiphany experience where he decided to put skin in the game, put his life at risk by staying and leading his people. The other thing they failed to do about Zelensky is Putin may control a large amount of the information space in Russia, but he didn't have control of the information space in, in Ukraine. Uh, we now have on Instagram and Twitter a literal record of millions of images of war crimes that have been committed, bombing of hospitals, maternity clinics, civilian apartment buildings. And I think also Zelensky has been able to use social media to rally his, his people and the world. Uh, he gave a speech to the UK parliament a couple of days ago where he got a rousing standing ovation. And I think that must smart because Putin probably didn't expect that. So when we talk about Zelensky, I think a big sort of... Uh part of understanding him is his prior career in acting and comedy and so on. And we've seen a couple of, I guess, world leaders uh, come to the political stage with some of those skill sets. I mean, the one you would think of as Ronald Reagan, who came in with those acting chops. And I think that certainly influenced how he was able to communicate himself, how he was able to present himself. So with Zelensky, I mean, how much of that sort of acting capability would you say that he has leveraged? Not to say that he's acting, but he has an eye for certain things in terms of how he frames himself, how he frames this battle. Is that a, does it play a big role? I think it does. It's a gift. Uh, it's a gift in the way that Ronald Reagan had that gift. Uh, Ronald Reagan was, of course, known as the great communicator. And everyone 
remembers that famous moment when when Ronald Reagan in 1987 went to the Berlin Wall and said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Uh, and Zelensky has that. He gave a beautiful eight-minute speech uh, about two weeks ago, shortly after the war started on Twitter to the Russian people. And, and he spoke not, not of what divides them and the differences in their cultures, but what unites them. Zelensky grew up speaking Russian. He, he's, a, a, he's a Ukrainian Jew. Russian was his first language. And he talked about his Russian friends, his experiences in the Donbass as a young man watching soccer games, football games, drinking with his Russian friends, cheering on the home team. His best friends were Russian. He talked about the Ukraine as part of the, how could they be called Nazis when his when eight million Ukrainians perished in uh, in World War II, as the Russians and Ukrainians called the Great Patriotic War, uh, how his grandfather was a Soviet army officer. So I think Zelensky talked about his his humanity and the humanity ties that bind Russia and Ukraine. I thought that was exquisite and masterful on his part, and those abilities have have served him well. Uh, again. If he had fled, we wouldn't be having this conversation. Uh, I think Putin would have achieved all of his goals and we would be having a different set of conversations. Uh, Ken, Andre knows this, but I was in London a couple of weeks ago and I visited the Churchill War Room. And now kind of looking back to that, I can't help but attempt to draw comparisons between Zelensky and, and Churchill a little bit, just being a, a wartime leader. And so do you think comparisons to, to leaders is, is proper? I mean, of course, in this case, Zelensky and Churchill, but just kind of more broadly doing that sort of comparison to kind of understand how leaders respond to certain things. Yes, I think that's very proper. And what we see in leadership in all sorts of domains, in diplomacy and in intelligence, in the world of business, in the world of medicine, in the military, is that crises and, and events like this often bring out the best in people, often in surprising ways. And I think we've we've certainly seen that with Zelensky. There's another factor here. Uh, everyone loves an underdog. And I think uh, Putin underestimated Zelensky, but he also underestimated the West's response and America's response uh, to the Ukraine. This is a war that is being fought in the open on social media. And I think it resonates with Americans. Everyone loves an underdog. But he also underestimated as many autocrats do, American exceptionalism and American resilience, and Ukrainian resilience in this case. But I think it's very fair to compare uh, different wartime leaders and, and look to them for examples of courage and heroism, as, as well as, uh, in, in an unusual way, humility. And we've, we've had the pandemic has shown it, in the West, in many cases, failures of leadership, disappointing failures of leadership. So having someone like Zelensky come along is perhaps one of the very few, if only silver lining in this horrible war in this dark cloud. So there's another third actor who's sort of involved with all of this, of course, of President Joe Biden. Uh, how do we sort of understand uh, President Biden's leadership during this particular phase of foreign policy, given that 
He's been in politics since the early 1970s on national politics uh, since the early 1970s. Uh, is he a cold warrior from those cold war days? Uh, has he mellowed a bit? What, what's your take on how he views his place in this crisis? I'm going to take a step back and tell you I don't profile American leaders. But I will say I admire what uh, President Biden has done in rallying NATO and the European Union and has shown uh, real leadership in this regard uh, in a way that probably uh, caught Vladimir Putin uh, and many other uh, leaders around the world and citizens by surprise, but that's a good thing. And other leaders, adversary leaders are watching. Uh, after, after the humiliating withdrawal from Afghanistan, this is a different step for America. And I think, uh, leaders such as Xi Jinping, uh, the, uh, the Supreme Leader of Iran, uh, North Korea's uh, Chairman Kim Jong-un are, are watching very carefully to see both how this has played out and how it continues to play out. I'm glad you brought uh, up Xi Jinping because uh, on the one hand, uh, Xi and Putin were, were together um, during the Olympics uh, in Beijing and uh, there was a lot of speculation as to whether or not Russia and Putin would make a decision to do any action um, with Ukraine during the Olympics just because of the sensitivity that Xi Jinping may have to it. Um, do you think, you know, of course, it seems like Putin and Xi have a, a nice relationship, but given your analysis of both of these leaders, um, how do you think this relationship actually plays out um, between them? And also, do you think Putin has a considerable amount of respect uh, for she and vice versa? I think it's much more mixed and complicated than has been reported, even by experts. Many see, and and one has, this is a case where one has to look at the history and not just at the statements that she and Putin has made. They, they've met so many times, dozens of times. And she famously said, I think in Vladivostok, when they had joint military exercises in 2018, we think alike. Uh, so it's easy to kind of look on the surface and see this as as kind of a bromance of sorts. Um, I'd be more careful. I think uh, this invasion of the Ukraine has rained on Xi's parade. It threatens, Xi welcomes stability. And whereas Putin is more of a disruptor of, of the world's rules-based order, very much so now, uh, Xi is not a disruptor in that sense. I think she has shown over the last decade that he wants to work with the rules-based order, but he wants one that's more China-friendly, China-centric, or China-controlled in a lot of key institutions. More votes at the at the at the at the conference table, if you will. So I think that's a key difference between them. I think their marriage is a marriage of convenience. Uh, if you look at Russian and Chinese history. One cautions are warranted. They almost went to war, nuclear war in 1969. And be and in the last several years, there have been there's been a lot of chatter on Sinoebo on Chinese websites by by netizens that Vladivostok and the Primorsky Krai, the Russian Far East, were a part of China before the late 19th century. So I think uh, and demographically. The the Russia is very much the younger brother in this relationship. And I think she knows it, but he won't humiliate Putin by saying it publicly. He's very careful in his words. Um, that being said, 
I, I think I think she was probably betrayed. They won't come out and criticize Russia publicly, but they did abstain uh, in the UN and not support uh, the vote. I think they want to play all angles and remain kind of a responsible power while still uh, having close ties with Russia. I guess my last question is then uh, going back to Putin, uh, what can we, I, I don't know, want to play the predictive game, but I might, what can we sort of expect from Vladimir Putin in the coming weeks, really? Uh, I mean, I feel like a lot of analysts are saying that Putin's at his weakest point in terms of grip on power that he has been in the, I mean, over 20 years that he's been in leadership. But I mean, is there any real possibility of him being usurped by like some folks below, by like people protests, or like, is he just going to be there for a long time, even as the Russian economy crumbles? I think one has to be careful with predictions in Russia. Uh, the or, While ordinary people, uh, protesters, have certainly shown courage and heroism in, in rising up, they, they've been quickly arrested. I don't think that ordinary Russians right now, from what we've seen in the media and, and the oligarchs, are going to be the ones that uh, change the course of, of Russian history. I think Putin has to be very careful uh, from his own power centers in, in the military and the security services that, that they could, if this was damaging to their interests or their perceived interests, uh, then Putin could be asked to uh, step down or, or not run again in 2024. That's certainly a possibility. Uh, I think Sadly, I think Putin is going to probably double down when he's cornered. That's part of his personality. In his, in his autobiographical book published in 2000, First Person, he describes during his childhood, you know, being, being in a stairwell in this tenement, the Komunalka, they're called in Russian, where he lived, and, and, and seeing a rat that was in his way. Well, he, he beat the rat to smithereens. So I think uh, a cornered, vulnerable Putin can be a more dangerous Putin. So we, we have to be very careful in irresponsible statements calling for regime change externally or assassination are completely unhelpful in this regard. Uh, this, what we have now is a combination of diplomacy with a, like a hostage negotiation where Putin, because he has nuclear weapons, is holding both the Ukraine and the West hostage. Uh, and to, to negotiate with hostage uh, takers like that, you have to use what uh, FBI negotiators that have written about this, like Gary Nessner and Christopher Voss, call tactical empathy. That doesn't mean a center agreement, but it means trying to understand the mindset and where that person's coming from. I think it's important to, con to consider and conceive of exit ramps uh, for diplomatic exit ramps for Vladimir Putin that allow him to save face and, um, and, and end this horrible conflict. As I've said publicly before, uh, this is a case where it's better to let the bear run out of his lair back into the woods. Well, with that, Ken, I mean, Andre and I, and certainly our listeners now have a better understanding of, of Vladimir Putin uh, those who he surrounds himself with, as well as other crucial leaders, and in particular, Volodymyr Zelensky. And so thank you very much uh, for taking the time today. We really appreciate your analyses and insights. 
And we hope to have you back on the podcast soon. Thank you very much for having me. It's always a pleasure and an honor to be with you. And that was our conversation with Ken Andre, a really a, just a wonderful conversation. We have not gone in that much depth on really the, the psych, psychological side of Putin, except for maybe a couple episodes previously, one with, of course, Fiona Hill, who really wrote the book on Putin. But um, I think for me, one of the greatest takeaways was really Ken helping us understand what his kind of inner circle looks like, right? The people he has around him. Uh, and the problem with that is that one, he's, he's largely isolated. And so he also depends upon other people to provide him advice and information. And it seems like the decision to invade Ukraine was one based upon a huge misunderstanding, one of the, the Russian military's capabilities and will, and two, the Ukrainian population's ability to not only you know, defend themselves, but also their openness to Russians coming into the country. Huge, huge miscalculation. Yeah, huge blunder. Probably one of the biggest mistakes of Vladimir Putin's life, because again, he made that classic sort of short war assumption, right? Like we'll sort of go in, be greeted as liberators, and we'll be out, or not be out, but you know, the people will acquiesce to what we want within maybe two days or so. What he severely underestimated the Ukrainians. And I think as we touched on in the interview, he underestimated Zelensky. And we talked a bit about I mean, what has made Zelensky's, uh, President Zelensky's leadership so effective? Perhaps a little bit of those acting and comedic days. He has an eye for how to frame the drama, how to sort of position himself and his people as, you know, that type of underdog, as Ken said, right? So, uh, I, I, I mean, it's really an interesting dichotomy of these two leaders when we sort of look at them and compare them. Right. I mean, Something that Ken touched on was how Putin's uh, experiences growing up, how you know his parents experienced World War II, the fact that he lost a sibling uh, in the war, and also him seeing in his early kind of young adulthood the fall of the Soviet Union. And again, Ken made the point that it's not necessarily that Putin's a, a communist and wants to reestablish the Soviet Union, but more so it's his goal to basically resurrect Russian greatness and to ensure that the international community and the United States in particular respects them again and also kind of stays out of, you know, the, the former Soviet space. Uh, we also talked about judo, which I thought was very interesting how, you know, judo is a, a mix of respect, but also gaming your opponents, um, anticipating next moves. And clearly, you know, while Putin may be very good at judo, his ability to translate that into the Ukrainian invasion was a complete failure. Well, clearly he didn't respect the Ukrainian leaders and therefore he underestimated them, right? Yeah. Uh, versus, I mean, how he's dealt with some of the other leaders of great powers. So, I mean, I mean, as many people have said, I, I feel like the situation is going to get worse as Putin gets more frustrated. Uh, we are already sort of seeing him resorting to just, you know, just gross human rights violations across the board. But uh, I, I think it's going to get worse. I mean, that's generally my assessment of this. I, I will say there are some silver linings here. One is Russia's capacity to continue and sustain this. They, they have supply chain issues. They Because they've been essentially sanctioned into oblivion, they're having a very hard time getting military equipment and supplies. And so now they're you know, looking to China not only for you know military assistance, but economic assistance as well. And so 
it's only going to get increasingly difficult, both for the actual physical uh, offensive, but also the the kind of the will of the the Russian military to engage in this, because we've seen reports that Russian battalions are kind of just were not fully aware of what they were getting themselves into. And that kind of has a lot of different origins in this. But uh, what I will say is that I agree, Andre, it's going to get worse before it gets better. We've seen just the indiscriminate bombing and killing of civilians. I mean, I've seen just horrid images of, of civilian casualties. Uh, and so it's, it's, a, it's a travesty and it, it's a, an, a war crime. And the international community is doing a lot, but of course needs to do more to ensure that we can help save as many Ukrainians as possible and ensure that Russia just doesn't destroy Ukraine because I don't see any um, you know, scenario, realistic scenario in which Russia could occupy Ukraine now or even probably take Ukraine just given the, the pushback. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's going to be, I mean, Javed Ali, uh, our mentor and former senior director of counterterrorism, he's been doing some appearances in the media lately, uh, talking about the ghosts of Afghanistan uh, that may be present in the Russians' invasion of Ukraine, namely the difficulties of occupation, especially when the Soviets invaded Afghanistan in the 1980s. They were just overtaken. I mean, not overtaken, but I mean, it was like a quagmire. It was like their Vietnam to an extent, because they tried to occupy a country for 10 years that did not want them there. And uh, this really might be sort of the situation in Ukraine, especially as we continue to arm a, a lot of Ukrainians, where a lot of the West is sending weapons to Ukraine, and Ukraine is wanting those weapons. And uh, yeah, it, it's going to be extremely difficult for Russia. But I mean, Russian, the Russian government generally has this capability to just expend men and resources at will, no matter what losses they sustain. So yeah, well, we, you know, you never say that history repeats itself, but it, it certainly is rhyming right now where we're seeing basically that the tactics being employed uh, by the Kremlin and Vladimir Putin. And, you know, if you, if you look to history, it doesn't really fare well for either side, particularly, you know, the, the the Ukrainian people, but of course, I, I imagine that NATO and Western countries are are going to do hopefully what they can to take in refugees, to arm the Ukrainians, uh, and to try to find some sort of diplomatic solution. I know that uh, Jake Sullivan, the National Security Advisor, is meeting with his Chinese counterpart in Rome, hopefully to you know have all these sides come together and just end this. Yeah, absolutely. Well, anyway, Ryan, uh, we haven't done What in the World in a little bit, so we'll be back on Friday with What in the World. We have a great lineup of episodes uh, coming up over the next few weeks. But for now, uh, folks, keep watching what's happening with that war and keep watching what's also happening in the rest of the world, of course, because there's a lot that's happening uh, throughout the world. Uh, But for now, we'll see you soon. See you next time.